Hello, welcome to EU to Campus, a podcast by the European Parliament Liaison Office in Washington, D.C. I'm Joe Dunn, I'm the director, and the main mission of this office is to foster and build up relations between the European Parliament and the U.S. Congress. At the same time, we're also providing information and building up awareness in the U.S. about the European Union, especially in relation to democratic values and transatlantic cooperation. This series of podcasts is intended primarily to help you, the students out there who are in the U.S., studying and following European Union affairs. So we hope we can help you by focusing on issues and events that go into making our union one step at a time, one day at a time. And to do that, we'll be talking to EU experts, EU parliamentarians, and EU scholars. We hope you'll find it useful. Enjoy listening. Hello, listeners. This is Ryan Malak from the European Parliament Liaison Office in Washington, D.C. In this third episode of EU2 Campus, we will be talking with Professor Vivian Schmidt who is Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration and Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the Boston University. Professor Schmidt is also Founding Director of Boston University's Center for the Study of Europe. Schmidt received her PhD from the University of Chicago. Her areas of expertise include the European Union, European politics and society, political economy, democracy, and the importance of ideas and discourse in political analysis. Her latest book, published in 2020, is entitled Europe's Crisis of Legitimacy, Governing by Rules and Ruling by Numbers. Other books she published include Resilient Liberalism in Europe's Political Economy, Debating Political Identity and Legitimacy in the European Union, Democracy in Europe, and the Futures of European Capitalism. Democracy in Europe was named by the European Parliament in 2015 as one of the 100 books on Europe to remember. Among the many honours, awards and fellowships, Professor Schmidt was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, an honorary doctorate from the Free University of Brussels, a Chevalier nomination in the French Legion of Honour, and an appointment as honorary professor at Luis Guido Carli University in Rome. Any views or opinions expressed in the EU to Campus podcast are the personal opinions of our guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect the position of the European Parliament, its members or its political groups. Professor Schmidt, uh, Vivian, it's a great pleasure to talk to you today. Very nice to have you with us on our podcast. Um, we're going to be focusing today uh, on questions of democratic legitimacy of the European Union and especially the role of the European Parliament. Uh, and of course, looking at your latest book, 
uh, out of your prolific production, but it's striking how, how excellent the timing of, of your book is. And um, of course, I couldn't help but notice that you gave evidence in a hearing of the ECON Committee, uh, Economic and Monetary Committee Affairs, in the European Parliament on the 2nd of December, um, which was uh, terrific, of course, to see. But perhaps we, if we could start uh, our short discussion today with maybe at the conceptual level, you know, what are we really talking about? Democracy and legitimacy are, are big words. They're linked, but not the same thing. So perhaps a, a little description from you of the, uh, I think you call it um, what, systems, uh, you know, looking back at the work of Fritz Scharf and other people uh, in the 70s and earlier. Um, I've said enough. Vivian, please. Well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very, very happy to be here to be talking to you and to the uh, audience. Um, so when I talk about looking at the EU, it's important to differentiate, really, to talk about democracy and legitimacy. And in this context, democracy refers to a specific form of government. Legitimacy is whether a government of any form is accepted, expect, whether government of any form is accepted by its citizens as having the authority to govern. So legitimacy can exist without democracy, but democracy really cannot exist without legitimacy, since by definition, it's based on citizen consent. consent. So liberal democracy, however, comes with additional requirements. You have to have at a minimum free and fair elections, active citizen participation in political or civic life, protection of all, humans, of all citizens' human rights, adherence to rule of law, plus probably need for citizens to constitute a demos, to have a sense of belonging together as a self-governing people. So you know, what is democratic legitimacy then? It's an elected government accepted as legitimate by its citizens because it's seen to govern effectively while responding to their expressed preferences in ways that benefit the public interest in are in keeping with common values. So this takes us to two ways of thinking about legitimacy itself. Legitimacy is governing authority, which is a sort of very general and basic way we think about this in terms of public consent and trust, but legitimacy is governing activity. And of course, what governments do have an impact on how citizens feel about them in terms of trust and consent. And so what I'm focused on the book, and I think what's really important to think about, in particular for the EU that has more legitimacy than necessarily democracy at the EU level. And actually, let me bracket the discussion of, of governing activity for a minute and look at legitimacy in the EU. You can ask, is the EU democratically legitimate as a governing authority, i.e. with tr public trust? Yes because that's been established very slowly after time, over time in policy area after policy area. But is it democratically, is it legitimate, and is it a democracy? Well, the EU is not a democracy in the way we understand it at the national level. But its member states are democracies, and of course the EU is its member states. So I think we can safely say that the EU is democratically legitimate 
if it's not a democracy in the sense that we think of the US as being a democracy, for example, or France being a democracy. Um, but then when we shift to governing activities, here one we could also say that the EU's governing activities have often reinforced EU governing authority with the exception of recent crises. So what are these governing activities? And this is where I use systems theory. Um, but for this, we can talk about um, legitimacy in terms of performance, a kind of output legitimacy, policy effectiveness and performance. You do things that citizens accept. But there's also legitimacy in terms of procedures, governance, and that's all of these words that we often use about accountability, transparency, inclusiveness, openness, as well as efficacy. And finally, and arguably most importantly, there is legitimacy in terms of the political aspects, political legitimacy, input legitimacy in these systems terms, which is about not only citizen participation and representation, but also political elites' responsiveness to the citizens. So these are the three different ways in which we can think about legitimacy in terms of governing activity, performance, procedures, politics. Thank you, uh, Vivian. So you, you were talking about trust in, in democratic legitimacy in policy area after policy area. And you know, I think the European Parliament does play an important role in this, but of course it doesn't apply in the same way in every policy area. So, so your book describes how the legitimacy of the European Central Bank evolved during the Euro crisis and um, you know, how the European Parliament came to play a great role. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, great. Um, so I think it's important to step back for a minute before I answer the question about ECB legitimacy and ask, what about the European Parliament? Um, and in the Eurozone crisis especially, we know that the European Parliament in everyday policymaking is tremendously important. Anything about the single market, any place where there's co-decision making, when co-decision is the European Parliament with the Council co-deciding on initiatives presented by the Commission, for example, that's co-decision. What we know is in everyday policymaking, in most fields, in particular in the single market, the European Parliament is very much almost an equal partner with the Council, with the member state leaders in the Council in intergovernmental decision-making. And so it's, this is more supranational. Um, but in the Eurozone crisis, which is not part of the co-decision process, or at least not in every aspect, but at the big moment of the crisis starting in 2010, what happened was intergovernmental decision-making took place. So it was the European Council, member states in the Council deciding and sidelining the European Parliament and using the Commission mainly as a secretariat. These are the years from perhaps 2010 to 2012. And in that context, one could say that one, the question that one would ask 
is was the European Parliament simply a talking shop or a potentially equal partner? And what we see over time is even with the sort of the Eurozone crisis, um, it becomes slowly but surely more of an equal partner. And in particular, what's interesting is to watch how this happens with the European Central Bank, which is the most independent of all central banks and all central banks are independent, so they don't have to. They, they're, they're not subject to much um, in the way of accountability forms. Although I dare say the US Fed, the Bank of England, is more subject to political accountability than, than the European Central Bank in its initial setup because of how independent it is. And what's interesting here is the European Central Bank, which doesn't have to do much other than officially go to the European Parliament every four times a year and listen, but it doesn't need to respond, it doesn't need to hear, and the European Parliament has no sanctions. So initially, um, the, European, the European Central Bank under uh, President Jean-Claude Trichet was indeed doing its quarterly reports, but there was not much listening or hearing going on. But what you saw is increasingly, in particular after 2012, after Mario Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes to save the euro, and slowly but surely started reinterpreting his mandate, kind of by stealth, but in plain view, in the sense that he kept talking, he kept explaining why these new, the new ways in which the European Central Bank was engaging in monetary policy with increasing monetary easing. Um, he kept legitimating by saying, it's in our mandate, even though the mandate goes from a very restrictive interpretation to an increasingly um, large and um, open, expansive interpretation. And in this context, the European Parliament played a major role in two ways. One, the European Parliament not only expanded the way in which it was dealing with the European Central Bank in terms of uh, not asking more and more um, uh, important uh, and leading questions, uh, but the European Central Bank itself was using the European Parliament as its own accountability forum. You see Draghi at one point saying, you know, you are the accountability forum for me. I'm coming here to talk to you. And it became a way for the ECB to communicate not only with the Parliament that could hold it accountable but could never sanction, but also to the general public. It's, way, it's the way the ECB found of communicating and making sure that it appeared increasingly legitimate to the citizens. This was tremendously important, of course, because the ECB was in a situation where it was, in the view of the Germans, for example, exceeding its mandate. And in fact, what you saw was the Constitutional Court coming back in the German Constitutional Court raising questions about the ECB um, monetary easing and the Bundesbank with it. But um, you know, significantly, it's really the ECB. 
uh, going to, you know, using the uh, European Parliament in a way as its go-to body for legitimacy. Thank you, Vivian. So um, it's very interesting to see how, how the Parliament has expanded to fill that, that vacuum in a sense. But I've heard you say that describe the EU as a split-level democracy. I mean, do you really think um, that covers the full complexity of the situation? As someone who's worked in the European Parliament, I still find it hard to consider the elections that happened in 2019 as sort of second order elections when you had a 51% turnout overall and you had Europe, perhaps not for the first time, but certainly in a, in a very strong way was, an, was a, a discussion point in the elections. Yeah, no, I think, you know, absolutely right. I, when I talk about uh, Europe being a split level, having split level legitimacy, what I mean is not to um, be too mean about the European Parliament. You know, it's as good as it gets, really, <clears throat> given the problems for the European Parliament as a supranational um, uh, body uh, in a case where, the, where politics is really national and where the European Parliament for a long time was basically the elections were seen as second order. You know, who pays attention to the European Parliament? Uh, it's national parties that decide who are going to be their members of the European Parliament. It used to be that they were, you know, has-beens or young upstarts. Um, that's less and less the case, no question. The European Parliament is becoming more and more legitimate, no question. But still, compared to the national level, it just doesn't have the politics in it. And so when I talk about the EU as being, uh, as having split level legitimacy, what I mean is for the most part, at the European Union level, we think about it, and, and certainly European civil servants think about it, as involving output and throughput. Or to remind you, policy effectiveness and performance and accountability, transparency, efficiency, inclusiveness, and openness. So, and whereas at the national level is where people vote for the member state leaders who then claim to represent them in the council. And sometimes they think of that as a representative forum, which of course it is not. It's more of a bargaining arena. Uh, so, I mean, in, in a way, the only entity representing the citizens is the European Parliament, but it's no substitute, obviously, for the national level. And I think what's interesting here is what we've seen over time is um, the politicization of Eurozone governance in a good way and a bad way. If we think about what well, 2006, I wrote a book entitled Democracy in Europe. And at that point, I said that the problem for the EU is at the European, European Union level, it's policy without politics. And at the national level, it's politics without policy. And that's actually been a problem for the national level as more and more policies that were the subject of politics are taken up to the EU level. National politics is emptied of substance. Okay, that's what I said in 2006. 
Now, I think we've seen increasing politicization at the bottom with growing Euroscepticism and from the bottom up with an increasing constraining dissensus, as they call it in the council. But we also see it at the top, politicization with a new politicized dynamics of interaction amongst all EU actors. Often increasingly contestational, the European Parliament, you know, blames the ECB for its role in the Troika and the, and the Eurogroup of finance ministers. The, the German um, Minister of Finance complains about the Commission um, and its flexibility in terms of the application to the rule of the rules to Southern European member states, etc. Um, so increasing politicization, so which has entailed that, has meant that at the EU level, we increasingly see politics with policy. But at the national level, given the rise of Euroscepticism, we've gone from politics without policy to politics against policy, or even politics against polity, if we think about Brexit. So I guess the question that you would need to ask me next is, so I'm gonna ask it for you, is, is this politicization a good thing or a bad thing? So certainly if you look at the content of the processes, prior to COVID, mind you, the content of the prices, processes in the Eurozone, um, in the Eurozone crisis or the migration crisis, the content of this politicization, you could argue was not such a good thing. It seemed delegitimizing as all of these different EU level actors are saying, you shouldn't do that, you can't do that, that's not legitimate. But in terms of the processes, well, that kind of contestation is actually what you see at the national level all the time. That's democracy. So what we argue is that actually the EU is becoming more democratic in terms of the processes. And in that way, that's a good thing. So um, this fascinating discussion, so talking about good and bad politicization, of course, makes me think of the US Congress and, and the US political situation. And of course, the European Parliament, in a way, has always looked to the US Congress as what it was going to be when it grew up. Um, and, but, you know, you've painted a, a picture of expanding competence in, with the European Parliament and the US Congress, if anything, is doing, going in the opposite direction. It's surrendered many of its power or delegated many of its powers to the executive. And I know this is a huge question, but how do, how do you see the two, um, as I say, continental democracies comparing in your scheme of input, throughput, outputs. And I know this could take another hour, but just a little a sketch. So I'll just give you a snippet yeah. here. Um, so I just said that in the EU level, it, sort of politics is at the national level and um, let's call federal um, the EU level. And at the EU level, it's about performance and procedures. Well, the U.S. has all three at, you know, at the same level at the federal level and actually at the national level as well. But for the most part, the politics is at the U.S. level, at the federal level. 
Um, and maybe we could say performance and procedures are as much at the at the federal level as at the national level. Yes, there's politics at, at sorry at, at the national at the state level, but it's not of the same order, or it simply follows the federal play, playbook really. Especially if you think about the ways in which um, net, low, state elections follow the federal um, politics so that in, in, in the midterm elections, it's generally how do we think about the president's performance? Um, so there's a kind of difference that sort of one is the flip side of the other. And um, so it, it makes me think of something that I said in the past about the rise of populism and also the um, capacity and capability uh, of the, you know, the U.S. versus the EU, and um, and so if we think about uh, the financial crisis, and you know, think about economic crisis generally, the U.S. as a kind of federal state, nation state, was able to respond very quickly. It had all of the um, all of the fiscal means at its disposal to save the banks, to institute TARP, to act quickly. Whereas the EU at the time in 2010 with the Eurozone crisis, because it was fragmented, because there are divided present preferences, simply didn't, couldn't act. And the result is we had 10 years of weak economic growth no solutions to the Eurozone crisis, to be honest. So in that sense, in, um, in, the, in the financial economic crises, the, U, the strength of the U.S. was its being um, not fragmentary, as opposed to the fragmentation in, the, in Europe. However, for 2016 election and the election of a populist Trump government. Everyone thought, oh my God, we've got Brexit, now we've got Trump, the EU is going to follow. But no, the strength of Europe was in its fragmentation. There was no European level government, so there was no populist figure who could be elected to the EU level at that moment as the populist tsunami was going. Instead, you did get some kinds of populist uh, parties taking over, winning, but then you got pushback in other places. You got the election of Macron. Uh, yes, you got Orban in Hungary even earlier, but so, but it means that the EU has not been taken over, has not gone through what the U.S. has gone through, with a um, with a government opposed to government, <laughs> if I could say, you know, angry, anti-deep state and all of that. But Europe didn't have that. So Europe's weakness in terms of fragmentation in the Eurozone crisis was its strength in the political crisis. However, what we saw is, and I think this could take bring us to COVID, um, without an appropriate response at the EU level to develop its own fiscal capabilities, 
um, the EU would essentially end up with one member state after another succumbing, I would think, to a kind of populist anti-system parties in government, would make, which would make the EU completely unmanageable and fragmented. But instead, with COVID, you got a complete change. So, I mean, Europe has staggers from crisis to crisis, but somehow manages to emerge stronger. So would you say that the COVID-19 has finally uh, created the pressure cooker conditions for banking union to be, or the EMU to be finally completed? Uh, definitely, but I have to correct you on saying that the EU goes from crisis to crisis and gets strengthened every time. I think we used to, that used to be the case, but in the decade, in, you know, in the past decade from 2010 on, the EU went from crisis to crisis that it failed to solve. You know, whether we talk about the Eurozone crisis, the migration crisis, Brexit, the, you know, the slow burning crisis of security and defense, the EU has not sufficiently uh, resolved those crises. on the contrary. But with COVID, I think it's important to note that in these early months of COVID, of the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought to myself, oh my God, this is the Eurozone crisis all over again. The council's unaccountable, it fails to act, the member, as member states pursue their own policies. The ECB claims it's not its mandate to deal with the spreads between German and Italian bonds. The European Parliament, sidelined again. The commission, nowhere. And it's also a migration crisis redux as national level borders go up. But very, very quickly, EU actors learn the lessons of the Eurozone. We finally see that, that, that the member state leaders and everyone else recognize for the first time the interdependence of the European economies as we get a symmetric shock of the pandemic. And we see the breaking of taboos against EU level rules on deficit and debt. Um, we see the next generation fund. Yes, it's temporary, but it's a major beginning. It's not exactly a Hamiltonian moment where the EU gets full fiscal capacity, but that could come. Um, we see massive, the promise of massive infusion of money to invest in growth, the greening of the European economy, the digitalization of the economy, and addressing inequality, plus sure support for employment and EU for health. And we should add that in this context, the European Parliament has been tremendously important, in particular at the end, in the budget fight, to put money back into EU for health and to push rule of law. And for the ECB, we saw it ramped up monetary easing with its pandemic emergency purchase program, abandoning the ratios of bond buying that had limited the ability to help countries in need before. And yes, it looks like we're going to get banking union. Uh, it seems to me that, that the European um, stability mechanism has now just been told or just been made a lender of last resort with a serious fiscal backstop. And yes, we're now talking about individual deposit insurance for the banks. All of it suggests that banking union will finally be complete. Um, these are all really tremendously important. 
there's one other piece of this in, the, in, in that in the commission has suspended the budgetary criteria, the deficit and debt rules, but those are not yet reformed. Um, I mean, to my mind, it should get rid of them entirely. That's not likely to happen. But then they should be used as guidelines or as standards, as Olivier Blanchard has talked about and others have. Um, but basically, I think that the, the real issue for the EU right now is um, how does it ensure that it moves forward in all of these ways? How does it ensure also that within two or three years, Someone doesn't come back, the austerians don't come back and say, oh, debt is bad, tighten your belts too soon. Because remember, that's exactly what happened with the financial crisis, after the financial crisis, and as the sovereign debt crisis hit, it was the EU leading the pack in terms of moving toward austerity. And it's the European Union that then continued and deepened austerity while the US continued with its fiscal stimulus. There are people who say Obama didn't do enough, perhaps not, but that was still massive fiscal stimulus compared to what the EU had done. So I think, you know, there's still more to be done to solve this problem, but I'm very, very optimistic. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Professor Schmidt, for this masterclass. I know there's no time, but I really would love to know what you would have said to Jean-Claude Trichet if you had been on the same panel, given that he opened his, his remarks, uh, showing how, talking about how many times he'd been in the ECOM committee, Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee, and how open he had been always with the European Parliament. Yeah, I only wish I had been able to have been on that panel. <laughs> I was, um, I did manage to say things about his performance before, which is that, of course, his whole focus on credibility and not engaging uh, seriously with political actors, I think was a tremendous detriment. And what you saw with Mario Draghi was a shift to a discussion of stability in the medium term, which opened up the possibility of reinterpretation of the mandate and a recognition that really the ECB is there not to demonstrate its credibility, but indeed to save the euro. And to its secondary objective is to ensure that European economies flourish. And it seems to me that, that we have now sort of let, this is a big leap forward in terms of uh, European commitment, EU commitment, to actually ensuring that all member states' economies flourish, and not just Northern Europe, which is what the response to the Eurozone crisis was. Thank you so much, Professor. It was such a privilege hearing your inspiring words today. Thank you. And thank you. Delighted to have been able to talk with you. Thank you everyone for tuning in. This is the end of this edition of eu to campus an Applo podcast bringing the EU closer to students and followers in the United States. Any views or opinions expressed in the eu to campus podcast are the personal opinions of our guests and hosts and do not reflect 
or represent the position of the European Parliament, its members or their political groups. Subscribe to EU2Campus via your favorite podcast directory and follow us at the European Parliament Liaison Office in Washington, D.C. on our social media platforms at EP Washington, D.C.